Greetings and welcome to Flanagan's Ecologic. I'm your host, Ted Flanagan. And today I'm joined by Felice Ventura. She's the Resilience Programs Manager for AVA Community Energy, formerly the East Bay Community Energy, one of the community choice aggregators here in California that's doing really innovative things. Really delighted to have Felice on the podcast today. Felice, welcome to the podcast. Great to see you. Hey, nice to see you too. Thanks for having me. How are you today? I am doing pretty well. It's a beautiful, sunny fall day. It's um, one of my favorite seasons, especially in Oakland. And I have two new folks joining my team at work today. Uh, So it makes me really happy that we have much more capability on our team, in addition to the fact that they're also really nice people. So yeah, that is that is great news. And I've already introduced you as the Resilience Programs Manager at AVA. So people people know, and, and that must mean that uh, resilience is gaining in stature within AVA and also in the marketplace if you're growing. Yeah. No, I think there's increasing recognition of the importance of resilience. Um, still a lot to be figured out, but yeah. from our community partners, from the members of our joint powers authority, and, you know, frankly, you can open, I remember there was a period this summer in the New York Times where, you know, any time that you looked at the front page of the New York Times, it really was a story about the importance of resilience um, between wildfires, other natural disasters, and really energy transition issues. So front page almost every day. <laughs> yeah. And in California, we have these PSPS events. What are the is that public safety power shutoffs that, yeah. that are are sanctioned that the that the utilities, the big investor-owned utilities, have been told by the Public Utilities Commission, yes, if the conditions are such that wildfire fires are likely to be sparked by your transmission and distribution lines, you can turn off the grid, right? Yeah, it's quite it's quite a term of art, that one. But yeah, it results from the findings of the transmission equipment, exactly sparking these wildfires. But um, it is a big trade-off, especially when you think about the fact that most of our, you know, infrastructure and society are predicated on the idea that we're going to have steady and reliable access to energy. That creates sort of this entire second round of us needing to figure out how to deal with conditions that we thought were static or stable that are no longer as such. Right. And it's almost like another layer, isn't it? I mean, you've sort of got the macro grid, the utility grid, that was called the macro grid. And then you've got this, well, we call them micro grids or these areas that can island, whether it's a building or a school or whatever, a community. Um, but it's it's another layer of a whole layer of infrastructure, isn't it? It is. And I think, you know, there are certain institutions, as you're pointing out, campuses, for example, whether that's a hospital or school who have been in that mindset of just planning for a power outage, even if it's short duration, I don't think that that mentality or that awareness and then also the resulting investment in a microgrid are something that's been front of mind for most people, right? Because again, going back to that assumption that we just, we have power on an uninterrupted basis all of the time. Yeah. So if you're, a, a, like you said, a fire department, a police station, a hospital, you probably had a generator in place for some time, right? That's That's been your form of resilience. 
And exactly. now we're and now we're trying a new model, which is to do it with solar and batteries, right? Yep, exactly. And you know, it's I think it's huge in terms of not only climate benefit, but also in terms of operational benefits, right? We don't necessarily have a built-in end of the gas tank. We presume the sun will come up the next day. And if you manage your loads correctly, you know, you have a much bigger stock of resilience when you're working with solar and storage. Really an indefinite, you have an indefinite fuel supply if you can, like you said, if you can manage it properly. Let's let's back way up and figure out how Feliz Ventura <laughs> came, to, came to this point in her life. Born and raised where? Uh, in Denver, Colorado. So I was actually born in Denver proper and lived in Denver almost my whole life until graduating high school. I briefly had a stint in a, a suburb of Denver, but um, born and raised in Denver. I didn't know that. And yeah. you know that I, have a, I have a big Colorado connection. I still have a house up in Snowmass that I... I love Denver, and and uh, my kids are Denver Broncos fans, and we'll always do. <laughs> so, yeah, what, my, my grandfather what was a passionate Broncos fan as well. Was he? <laughs> yeah, you, you probably you probably remember the John Elway days, right? When you Absolutely. were little, yeah. yeah, yeah. What were your What were your early influences or your parent parental influences? What What was What was life well, like in the Ventura household? I think as a kid, you know, growing up in Colorado, or at least in my house, there was kind of a connection to the natural world and, uh, you know, not necessarily an environmentalist, but I think that is, as we call it today, but just really in that era, there was just a strong awareness of like, we are part of a greater system, right? And then here's how you fit into that picture. And so both of my parents are very kind of engaged with the natural world in their own ways. They are both attorneys, but my mother was focused on water law, which certainly has, you know, in Colorado, a huge importance to, you know, the economy and society and how people live. And I think that was for me a really strong linkage of understanding how all of these systems are connected, right? So it's not really just water, it's about, people's livelihood and all of the that rely on the water system and really beginning to think about things from a system perspective as well as from a trade-offs perspective. So that is that was my mom um, and she's still practicing actually today, which is pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. And then yeah. my father was a public defender for the city of Denver for his entire career and really specializing in folks who were accused of violent crimes. Definitely folks who had really strong perspective on what the world should be yeah. like. <laughs> yeah, 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 no kidding. Now, you then you went off to Pomona College and yeah. uh, studied, studied international relations. Why Why did you choose international relations? I love that well, field. I, I, I started did. at Pomona. I was actually a biology major. And I, at that point, had been working in a science lab for several years, um, actually two different science labs at that point, uh, working on different, you know, molecular biology topics. Um, And I really loved biology, but uh, by the time that I had been sort of two years into Pomona, I was at that that age. Well, how did you get into the international relations? (laughs) Um, Through vector-borne disease, actually. So one of the 
one of the things that was this eye-opening um, research that I was reading about was really how disease would spread and how, you know, in that paper, um, yep. how natural communities would be impacted by climate change. And I really, at that point, kind of going back to that systems thinking thought, oh my, well, yeah. <laughs> if we're going to stop something like this, this isn't a lab question. This is a bigger question around policy and management and how do we get that done and just linked up kind of neatly with me sort of feeling like I had a grip on lab science and wanting mm -hmm. to be able to apply those findings in a broader sense. Right. And then was Chile the next, it was Chile next up on your, in your list I was, here? Yeah, I was, uh, I studied there when I was an exchange student at Pomona. So there was a required um, international exchange for international relations majors. And I yep. was very interested in uh, not only kind of a, a Spanish speaking country, um, but also the political and forestry related issues in Chile. So I spent uh, time both at the Catholic University of Chile and the University of Chile during that time, and one in the Institute of Political Science and the other at the Forestry School, thesis on participatory democracy and resource management in the context of forest resources. So essentially saying if you bring mm. people who live on the land into the decision making around how to manage resources, are those resources better managed in the long run? Right. And, and ethanol was a big part of that, right? Uh, at that time, it wasn't a huge issue, but it became a big issue later on. So by the time that I was in graduate school, the issue related to ethanol and cellulosic ethanol became um, a big topic, uh, as well as, you know, the trade policies that enabled uh, the demand or supported that demand for ethanol in the U.S. You know, it's interesting. I was, when you're talking about uh, international relations in Denver, you know, my daughter went to university. One of my daughters went to University of Denver and yeah. studied inter international relations. And one of the greatest things was, you know, that semester abroad, like you, you went off to Chile, she went off to New Zealand. And I think it really shaped her life in a big way. You then went to UC San Diego um, for quantitative policy analysis. That just sounds so heady to me. Yeah. So I, after Pomona, was still sort of, you know, this was, a, frankly, this was a long time ago, right? Um, and I had an idea of, I would like to be able to use sort of this diverse skill set that I have to help big organizations deal with their issues related to climate change, right? At that time, that wasn't a job. <laughs> um, and even at that time, there was, unfortunately, debate related to, you know, whether or not we should be doing something about climate change really proactively. So it hadn't really gotten to the mainstream. So I, I spent some time in Washington, D.C. and uh, realized that I needed to go to graduate school. I think that was kind of always in the mm -hmm. cards for me. Uh, but had begun to peel off from the, the strictly academic route of a PhD and started looking at, okay, if, if this is, if you want to take action uh, in the context of climate change, how do you actually do that? And to me, that wasn't a PhD process. It was really around informing how policies 
get developed and decided. And, uh, you know, I, I ended up um, being fortunate in having a pretty good selection of choices about where to go to graduate school and ended up at UCSD, um, partially because it was really a welcome <laughs> time to go back to California. Um, you know, I still live in California now and obviously has wonderful benefits of, of being a Californian. Uh, but also UCSD made me a really uh, excellent financial offer of support to, to go there mm. and also demonstrated that they had this really excellent skill set that was really what I thought an effective way of communicating about the benefits of taking climate action, which was that quantitative approach right. that really beginning to to dig further into, well, you know, you say this is the right right way or the best way to do this. How do we know? Right. And there's yeah. a qualitative approach to that, but we can also, in addition to that, add more rigor and specificity and generalize across many fields by using a quantitative lens. So that is how I ended up at UCSD. Is that fascinating? Is that close to systems dynamics? I mean, it seems quite close. You're, you're basically taking a lot of data and running models to, to yeah. try to prove a point one way or the other, I guess. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that's another way of thinking about it. And, you know, when we, in, in the way that I worked on it, in graduate school and continue, I think, to work on kind of problems and data analysis. Typically, we're not talking about, you know, an existing data set. Um, as somebody who has worked for many years as an economist, like there's just not good data sitting around. Like I think many people who are not in data intensive fields have this idea that, oh, there's just sort of like data that's this gold mine sitting there. We it's just need good. to work on it. Like the data don't exist. There's no data. Um, so part of it is being creative uh, about how do we get to this information that helps us then apply these the systems level analysis to it, right? And so that for me is super satisfying kind of creative part of what is data? How do we find it? And then how do we make sense about it? So at grad school, what was what were you, you were focused in right in on climate change then, I take it? Yeah, absolutely. So again, kind of working on climate-related issues, um, there was a kind of an MBA sort of core related to negotiation and strategy, as well as sort of business practices, uh, but really focusing on, uh, again, this idea of when you have a particular policy, and in this case, a forestry policy, um, how does that, how do decisions that are made from a management perspective influence the results? And that can be, you know, from a livelihood perspective for those who rely on that resource. That could be from a carbon perspective, from, you know, using a broader environmental lens. Um, that can even have, you know, fiscal and economic development impacts that should be known and understood and broadcast as we make these decisions about how we manage these resources. Yeah, I, it, it sounds to me like you, you became a specialist at internalizing uh, things that have been external to the to the classic yeah. benefit cost equation, right? Yeah. And that was, you know, that was one of my favorite classes, <laughs> benefit <laughs> cost analysis. But yeah, no, I, I think to me, it always seemed like, why, why would you stop at dollars? Because clearly, that's not everything. And 
people value other things. And it's, I've spent actually a significant portion of my career working on this idea of how do you ensure that we are using a broad-based accounting of both what it is that we're giving up as well as what it is that we are getting when decisions are made. And you and I have talked about this in terms of resilience and municipal buildings that we've been working on together up in the Bay Area and that we don't really have a, a, we don't have a dollar value of what is the benefit of resilience, right? I mean, unless you're an ice cream, you know, freezer facility (laughs) and you know that if it melts, it's worth X number of dollars, but you know, what is the value of having a, a public building being operational during a prolonged outage? It's a complicated thing to figure that out and to, and what you're, I, I guess you're internalizing all of those values or what some people call them co-benefits as, as a means of advancing planning, right? And, and advancing policies. Absolutely. And I, I certainly think that, you know, it's possible to do uh, a bit of a richer quantification or yeah. monetization of benefits than is typically done, right? So we can think right. about that ice cream vendor, the lost wages of the people who may have worked there. We can think about um, the, who knows, the agglomeration economies of having that ice cream shop open that then benefits the shop next door that the person would have not otherwise popped into, but for the ice cream. Um, yeah. That, I think, is, there's there's room to kind of easily, fairly easily go broadly on that, um, but mm-hmm. totally kind of zooming out on the resilience topic, Yeah, we do not really do a good job, I think, of monetizing in part because there are things that we're not comfortable with monetizing and it's okay to leave some things not dollarized, but recognize the importance of them regardless, right? And so in my mind, when I look at a benefit cost analysis or a headline on, you know, a disaster caused this much damage, I'm not just looking for the number. I'm looking for what else happened that is important to our decision making around how we want the future to look after this event. Um, So, and that means how do we want our societies to operate how do we want um, our businesses to thrive and support people? Because at the end of the day, really, <laughs> people should be at the center of all of this accounting, or at least very close to the center of this accounting. Yeah. Yeah, I had an interesting experience with with FEMA and trying to get money from FEMA. And oh. you know, in, in their benefit <laughs> cost analysis, uh, if you could prove that you're avoiding a death, Oh, that that's great because every death with I think was worth this was a few years ago, but worth like one point six million dollars. Right. Our project where we were trying to br- bring resilience into a community, uh, we couldn't prove any avoided deaths per se. But you know that was this this very clunky attempt to you know put a val- put a value on these like you said these uh, these qualifying uh, these qualifiers really uh, yeah. and these other virtues like re- like resilience is what's it worth? Yeah, and I think you know even that attempt to get to a dollar value, right? Like that's limiting the conversation in a way. And yes, we need to to consider perhaps in a more qualitative way the risks and benefit, but it should never, it's largely incomplete. Um, And that, that has been a big critique of, for example, all of those FEMA calculations is not only are they using sort of these static values that, um, 
you know, are in the end kind of subjective the way that they're developed, uh, but that they're not really telling you the whole story. If the point of having this tool is to help you understand the full story and the trade-offs, maybe we ought to be thinking a little bit smarter about how we share that information and understand those trade-offs and not just say, here's the, here's the one number, right? Like here's the benefit never just yeah. one number. <laughs> yeah. Right. Here's the ratio. 1.1. Yeah. No, 1.15. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, well, I mean, spent a you... lot of time in the FEMA BCA tools, I can tell you. Yeah. <laughs> There's a how lot of you... numbers behind that one number. How did you, how did you share, like you went to UC San Diego, you got, you were focused on the quantitative policy analysis. Were the jobs that you had right after that just following right along in that in that vein? I mean, I know you went um, to ECOM for a number of years. Yeah, I went actually right after graduate school to the state of Washington, where I ran their clean tech. It was essentially an economic development um, and strategy program, and it had sort of a policy component related to economic development, not only helping uh, consider what policies could advance what we used to call green collar jobs, mm -hmm. but also how the state could support that. And one of the ways that the state supported that was also by providing business consulting to clean tech companies. And so it was my job to go and talk to various clean tech companies, um, you know, which were in pretty early stages and help them figure out how they could scale up. And that could be something as simple as, hey, if we could get financing from the Export-Import Bank, who we were co-located with, uh, all the way to, well, let's do an introduction to um, major entities like Mitsubishi Heavy Industries to see if there's an opportunity to do a co-development of particular tech products, right? So all of that was really focused on the clean tech space, and it was pretty cool to be working in a space where you really are sitting at those levers of policy and able to understand how exactly, <laughs> from a business standpoint, uh, state policies could support uh, the growth of this industry, which at that time, you know, was a lot of debate on like, what is clean tech and yeah. how should we advance it? How interesting, how interesting. And then and then you went off to AECOM? Yeah, so my, partner at that point decided that he wanted to uh, go to graduate school and I had already gone and so essentially it was his turn <laughs> yep. and um, he ended up at uh, UC San Diego and so here I am I find myself back in San Diego <laughs> <laughs> and um, ended up at AECOM largely because of its global reach at that point you know I am somebody whose skill set Certainly, I worked on some projects in San Diego, but um, it was really beneficial to me to have the large global organization uh, behind me and be able to access a wide variety of, of projects and work to contribute to. So I was there um, at AECOM in San Diego for a number of years, I'm going to say maybe five years and five or six, and then ended up uh, moving up to the Bay Area also with AECOM. Um, after that as well and you know over time exposed to a really wide variety of projects and a huge number of very talented and very passionate colleagues um, and you know people don't think of sort of big giant behemoth companies as being a place where necessarily people uh, are super passionate but that was not my experience 
in the part of the company that I worked in. It was a lot of folks who were really dedicated about changing the world and the relation to the skill sets that they brought to it. So it was a, it was an interesting time to be at that organization because it felt like uh, like a really big startup. Things were always changing. We weren't quite sure how to do things, but we also kind of knew what it was that we wanted to do. Right. And were you working on um, climate change issues primarily there? I started out, yeah, working exclusively on climate-related uh, well, maybe not quite started out. I actually started out in a different area and then was quickly snatched up <laughs> into the climate action planning group and then yeah. fully into the uh, sustainable, what at that point was called the sustainable economics team. Um, but because there was such such a global reach and I have uh, an unusual skill set, <laughs> I think, uh, especially for the U.S., um, had the opportunity to do work uh, all around Latin America and in parts of Asia that was not necessarily climate related, it was primarily infrastructure or very large project development related, which, you know, was nice, is really nice to have a very solid understanding of how decision making and um, not quite financing, but project development works for very large scale proje- projects because a lot of these large infrastructure projects are required or going to be required for us to manage uh, not only the impacts of climate change, but thrive under future climate conditions. So really kind of thinking through the the economics of a mega project. <laughs> right, right. And why you really should be investing now for something that's coming down the pike. Exactly. Um, Felice, let's, let's just jump forward and, and talk a little bit about your work at AVA. Um, and, you know, Ava, I've already mentioned, is a community choice aggregator. It used to be East Bay Community Energy. And is it fair to say that utilities have not offered resiliency services in the past? You know, it's interesting. I was just at a conference uh, recently and, you know, it was a session on resilience as a service. Like, how do we do it? Who wants it? Right. And I mean, I think the answer is everybody wants it. <laughs> it's yeah. just that they didn't know that they had to want it and do something actively, right? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, CCAs are a little bit different than a, a capital U utility in some ways, but um, I think still can be part of the solution on that that question. And the assumption certainly for a long time has been that resilience is part of the core offering to the point that nobody really realized that you could do it another way, right? But we are at a point in our sort of infrastructure and climate contexts where those items are being, uh, I won't quite say separated, but needing to be addressed um, individually to ensure that they go together. Well, I I think I I was just having this conversation with the head of Pinnacle West a few weeks ago out in Phoenix. And, you know, utilities, we always had the obligation to serve everybody, right? And and that was the deal. But, uh, and reliably, but now, uh, like you said, now there's now there's new means of doing this. And so how is Ava, how is Ava under your guidance or your direction, how are you deciding which segments to work on first, customer segments to work on first? Uh Well, I think we want to work on all the segments first, which is (laughs) part of the reason that we're, we're growing the team. You know, there's the uh, energy resilient municipal facilities, which really speaks to those 
those kinds of facilities we were talking about at the beginning of our discussion that are really public facing or public serving entities. Um, There's another program that uh, provides solar and storage to residents, which, um, you know, not only provides benefits to the residents in terms of resilience, but has this really cool ability to reduce strain on the grid by coordinating the use of all of these batteries. And certainly that's something that's um, possible with the energy resilient facilities, kind of more microgrid construct as opposed to just solar and storage. But, you know, I think the special sauce that we bring to these types of programs is really being able to think about them from a, a customer benefit perspective, right? So for me, it's not just a benefit to those who participate in a program, but it's being able to come up with a business model that helps everyone who is in our service area. And, you know, we, low rates are important to us. We have to do a lot of work um, as we meet our very aggressive 2030 as carbon-free electricity goal to ensure that we can do that as well as provide low rates. Um, And one of the ways that we can do that is, is through managing these batteries actively. And that means that when we do that, we're providing benefits not only to the folks who have solar storage, but also putting less strain on the grid and also needing to buy less energy that is dirty. So, you know, to me, being able yeah. to think about programs again from that systems perspective is is how we try to, to come up with programs. It, sounds, it seems to me that the brilliance of what you're doing is you're you're taking this feature, resilience, which is, we think, I've always think it's expensive. Batteries are expensive if that's what they're being reserved to do. But you're taking that notion of resilience and somehow you're you're creating programs that have multiple, where the batteries have multiple revenue streams or multiple benefits. I guess what people talk about the stacked benefits of batteries. So in that residential model, uh, that homeowner's got resilience, but also is a contributor to the grid's conditions, right? Exactly. And I think that's, you know, the unique benefit of being at a CCA is that we're really able to think about how to bring benefits in a new way, right? In a way that a private sector company would not be able necessarily to do. And also that, you know, a, a utility that was an investor owned utility would have difficulty doing. So we can really come in and think about, okay, (laughs) how do we do the best job on this and not to say that we have it all figured out by any means it's a process of of working through um, a lot of concepts and a lot of trying new things and a lot of convincing frankly of other folks in the industry to go down that pathway with us to figure out how do we get to that goal right and in some cases might customers that want resilience pay a premium for it I know that's what sure. you don't, that's the goal would be, I mean, the ideal would be, no, they wouldn't have to because you, you figured out smart ways of, of using batteries. And, but is that, is that, is that a possibility that, think, that we will have resiliency tariffs at some point? Uh, people are oof, paying a premium. I've been, I have <laughs> been engaged in that conversation for a long time. Yeah. Um, I think that unfortunately, you know, that, is the state of the conversation around resiliency tariff, but I don't think that should be the state of the conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You think there's I, smarter. You think there's smarter ways of doing it. 
yeah, and I think there's also better long-term ways of doing it, right? Like when we think about infrastructure and really where we want to be in the long term, do we want to be, this goes back to kind of creating the world we want, do we want to be in a world where you have to pay for that? No. So let's not plan for that world because that's not what we want. Um, You know, if we're really working on these, whatever it is, uh, 20, 30, 40, 50 year timelines, we have an opportunity to to test new things and and figure out how to do things the way that we want them, not necessarily just make the next step that is sort of an extension of the current conditions. Right. Well, I'm glad you're I'm glad you're there and, and working on this. Let me let me ask you a question about um, young professionals um, who might be listening in, who might want to get into the resilience. I've talked to several actually recently that are really eager to get into the resilience space. And where would you point? What if you what if you had that conversation? Where would you point a young professional, or not necessarily a young professional, but a professional wanting to make a change, wanting to delve into this space? I think there's so much, so much that needs to be done, and really the first thing that I think is maybe the hardest thing is deciding what about kind of all of these facets of resilience is interesting or relevant to to that particular person, right? Because there's uh, social resilience, there's ecological resilience, there's economic resilience, there's energy resilience, right? And they all relate to each other in some ways and have overlap and really require a broad set of skills um, to further that mission. And so I think really the first step is honestly deciding what it is about resilience that gets you excited. And also, you know, for folks who maybe are thinking about like a major or a change of career, what are you bringing that helps us as as a society address these challenges, right? And that is a lot. (laughs) We we can use everyone. <laughs> we have a big job to do, don't we? Exactly. So there's plenty of work to do. Now, now last question for you. Uh, I always think of you as being very cool, calm, and collected. I know you have a five-year-old son. I know you have a lot of responsibilities. How do you how do you stay cool, calm, and collected? Well, it's an interesting question. I I don't always feel that way. <laughs> so thanks. Um, but I think largely. I've had the benefit of being around a lot of folks who've had really big jobs. And when I say jobs, I don't just mean sort of paid professions. I mean, sort of maybe more that mission orientation of people who viewed themselves as having major things that they wanted to deliver, um, whether that was in their career or professional life. And I think just being able to have that long-term view that you know, we have a goal and we're going to work toward it helps me think that, you know, today is important, but it's not going to be more important than any other day. So how do we get the best out of this day to move toward that long-term goal? And if something didn't come out great today, we have plenty of other days in the hopper that we can work on that. (laughs) That's great. That's great. I love it. Felice, thanks so much for your time today. Yeah, no, it was great chatting with you, Ted. I hope you have a great day, too. That's it. Thanks for listening to Flanagan's Ecologic. We'll see you next time.